This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Now, one of the things that is very interesting about Whitfield, I've talked about him as the preacher, and now I want to talk to you about Whitfield as the founder of Methodism. It is something of a misnomer to say that Wesley was the single founder of Methodism. In fact, uh, a very strong case can be made that in fact it was Whitfield that started the movement and then only subsequently did Wesley come along and take up leadership and become the second founder, if you will, of Methodism. But the first founder was Whitfield. Isn't there great irony in this? That a Calvinist, a die-hard Calvinist, was the true founder of Methodism? Very strange. Well, Whitfield, after his conversion in 1735, uh, began preaching. And he was the first one to move outside of the church building and to go out into the fields and start preaching. And at the age of 22, 1737, he was having massive success. People were being converted by the masses. Large crowds all over England were coming to hear the boy preacher. And he was giving them all the sermons about the new birth over and over again. And during this time, where was John Wesley? John Wesley had decided in 1735 to take a trip to Georgia to become a missionary. And I'll talk more about that as I get along here and explain. Georgia, colonies, Georgia. The colonies. To Georgia, the colony of Georgia. Uh, his goal was to convert the Indians. And, in, and according to Wesley's own testimony, he was at this time still not converted. So the movement had gotten started. Methodism had gotten started first before Wesley's conversion ever took place, number one. And secondly, Wesley was not even in the country when these revivals began to occur, when Whitfield began to have these massive uh, crusades, if you will. Revival was spreading across England in Bristol, in London, in Gloucester. And Whitfield, remembering the name that those students had given the members of the Holy Club, and they called them Methodists, he said, you know, I kind of like that. I'm going to call this revival movement, we're going to call ourselves Methodists. So the person who coined that phrase was Whitfield. Now, it really originally came from their enemies when they were at Oxford, but he appropriated it 
and used it to describe the movement that he had inaugurated in 1735 as a boy preacher, as a young young man. So in the next few years, from 1735 to 1739, Whitfield is about all going up and down the country, preaching and uh, establishing this revival movement in England called Methodism. And again, this is all before Wesley was converted. In fact, he wasn't even in the country. There's little doubt that contemporaries, that people, when they looked at the movement called Methodism, they identified it with, with Whitfield. He was the leader of this new revival movement. Wesley, in 1738, uh, having utterly failed in his attempt to evangelize, to do his missionary work in Georgia, returned dejected to England in 1738. By that time, the Methodist revival was in full swing, already in progress. Now, I said to you before, be, earlier that uh, Whitfield greatly admired Wesley. I mean, there was this, this almost this adoration that the younger Whitfield had for the older Wesley. And uh, Whitfield, having all this success, decided to invite Wesley to come on board and to help him with this revival, with this Methodist revival. And in fact, by this time, by 1738, 39, uh, Whitfield is starting to think, you know, I should go to the colonies and preach this good news about the new birth. And so he thought, well, I'll get my great friend John Wesley to take over the leadership of this movement in England while I go over to America and begin preaching to start the Great Awakening. And so uh, Whitfield began to take Wesley with him on his preaching tours to the various cities, introducing Wesley, giving him a place of prominence, asking him to preach as well. And Whitfield then, in 1739, 17, yeah, 1739, sailed to America. And he left control of the movement, the leadership, to Wesley. Anyway, when Whitfield came back a year later, Wesley had liked the position of leadership and was a bit reticent to give it back to Whitfield. Uh, and Whitfield so admired Wesley, he couldn't imagine fighting with this man. And Whitfield, it's really rather extraordinary, he simply refused to fight for leadership. And he completely backed away. And he just simply let uh, Wesley take over uh, this, this movement. And he continued to preach. And he did have a following of his own. But in that year, year and a half that he was gone to the States, Wesley had asserted his leadership, and he was a very great and powerful leader, a great preacher, and he built his own following as well. Uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, Wesley and Whitfield did separate, and the reason, one of the main reasons they separated was because of Wesley's Arminianism and Whitfield's Calvinism.
Whitfield believed rather strongly in a Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. But Whitfield was the kind of person who, who had decided that although he believed that, he did not want that to be the focal point of his ministry. He wanted to be more known as the preacher of the new birth rather than the guy who believed in predestination. Uh, and Whitfield knew that Wesley had opposed this notion, had always opposed it, and was it wasn't likely that he would be converted to it. And so before Whitfield left for his preaching tour in 1739, he said to Wesley, I know you don't agree with me on this matter of predestination. Let's agree not to let this be an issue. I, wa I love you. I, I want you to take leadership of this, this, this revival. But please, don't make an issue about predestination. Uh, I've been preaching this stuff, and the people it would simply upset the people. So just please don't do it. Well, just before uh, Whitfield set sail, uh, he had asked again Wesley not to do anything about this matter. Uh, four weeks after Whitfield left, Wesley preached a vehement sermon against the doctrine of predestination to Whitfield's followers in Bristol. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is 1739. And this was the beginning of the split between Whitfield and Wesley. But Wesley didn't simply preach one sermon on this question. He had it published and republished three times. So you get the impression that Wesley felt this was a significant issue and he wanted to change people's minds about this idea of predestination. So, what's interesting again is that Whitfield did not respond for 19 months. Given the fact that his friend that had, 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 some, had, had betrayed his, his, his confidence uh, and said that he wouldn't do this, uh, you'd think that, that Whitfield might re respond in great anger. Well, he didn't. He waited for 19 months, and the sermon kept getting republished, and the issue kept coming up again and again. And finally, Whitfield felt compelled to respond to these published sermons. And so 19 months after the fact, Whitfield wrote and published a short letter entitled, A Letter to the Reverend Mr. John Wesley in Answer to His Sermon Entitled, Free Grace. That was the title of Wesley's sermon that was published. Well, as a result of this friction over predestination, the movement split. And it's in this split over predestination that... Wesley emerges as the new leader of this revival movement. Uh, in part because Whitfield wouldn't fight. Or wouldn't fight, really, for some time. 
initially, Wesley did not call his movement uh, Methodism. That was the name associated with Whitfield. So initially, Wesley decided to come up with a new name for his separate movement called the United Society. So Methodism, at least Wesleyan uh, Methodism, was first called the United Society. But again, uh, Whitfield uh, was unwilling to fight, and pretty soon uh, the movement now headed by Wesley appropriates the name Methodists and accepts it. It's it's a uh, yeah. Was that a positive thing that he decided, in your opinion, that he decided not to fight Wesley at that point, or is that bad? Um. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's a really hard question. Uh, I I must say that I have great admiration for someone like Whitfield, who um, who didn't want to discredit. I mean, for him, what was more important was the reputation of Christ, and to go head to head with another well-known uh, man of God. I think Whitfield felt that that. Uh, Better to, to, to take it on the chin himself than, than, than discredit the name of Christ in general. So I have a, I have a real respect for Whitfield here. Uh, it, it's true that, that uh, by not fighting that Methodism took on a very distinctive theological uh, orientation, one that he did not share. And so, in a sense, historically speaking, Whitfield lost because his uh, particular theological focus was was uh, taken up by a much smaller group called the Calvinist Methodists. There, there's still a group in England called the Calvinist Methodists, a, a very small denomination, uh, tended to be Welsh. Uh, but so, so I have real admiration for him. I, I think there's a, there's a godliness to Whitfield. I'm going to. Just like I did with Luther, I'm going to tell you some blots on his character. See, I like to... Uh, there, there's something very important in my reason for doing this. Don't ever exalt a man. I, I'm, I guess I'm sort of on my own crusade about that. I think it's... I think, it's, uh, I think evangelicals have a problem with this, as a matter of fact whether it's your local pastor or some uh, Christian celebrity, whoever it may be, uh, we need to be careful. And so there is something of a method to why I build somebody up and then I just I sort of mention that uh, these persons are not perfect. Uh, I'm, I feel real strongly about this. And, and, and I think I'm also being a good historian. A good historian will try to give you a full picture. What happens is so often in conservative evangelical kinds of contexts, we have these great heroes, you know, and we, we paint these gorgeous pictures of them. And, I, and that's, it's really not entirely accurate. And I think that I am duty bound to be as accurate as I can about these men. Kind of brought Wesley along to take over, so to speak, and then when the big controversy on the issue of predestination came along. But 
It seemed like there was a, a good amount of time, maybe. Well, I'm sure Whitfield must have understood, even at the beginning, the differences on their theological. Oh, he knew there were differences. When they first even started, when you first brought him on board, so to speak. He knew there were differences. And so, it just seems like that. Was there possible some lack of discernment or some other? May very well be. I mean, maybe he gave us so much too soon. You know, he didn't sell some things first before he said, "Listen, I want you to take those." May very well. I mean, looking back, probably. But don't worry. But the thing I stress though is that Whitfield looked to Wesley as you know a spiritual mentor. I mean, he was the guy who led him into Oxford and, and, and to the Holy Club. I mean, Whitfield had this enormous admiration for him, and he just uh, he felt that it would be okay. And uh, as it turns out, uh, it, it cost him the leadership of this movement. And the other thing is, Whitfield was not a great organizer. He was a guy who loved to go out and preach. He wasn't a, a sit-down-behind-a-desk kind of guy and plan out and organize things. Wesley was... So they had different personalities, and that contributed to it as well. Uh, one of the things about uh, Whitfield that makes him a little different from some other types is that he didn't mind crossing denominational boundaries. Uh, he'd preach wherever you'd give him a pulpit. Uh, he was doing things like preaching in Presbyterian churches, uh, Anglican churches, Baptist churches, Congregationalist churches. And that was quite a bit unusual in that period of time. Uh, he was an Anglican, an ordained Anglican preacher, priest. Uh, and to cross denominational lines like that was, was quite unusual. But he was not... He had, a, he had a, in a sense, had a kind of a modern 20th century mentality. His goal was to preach the new birth. He didn't care what your denominational background was. Uh, and when you preach in open fields, uh, you can come from whatever denominational background it is you come from. Just come out in here and in the field and listen. It wasn't associated with a building that said, this is a Baptist building, I have to go to the Baptist church to hear Whitfield or the Anglican church. You just go out to the field. Uh, and so he doesn't have this really highly developed sense of denomination. just wants to preach. He's a, he's a real evangelist. Uh, he was criticized for this a great deal for having so much to do with with uh, these Presbyterians and Congregationalists and, and Baptists but nevertheless uh, he pressed on uh, just just a word about blots on his character uh, and this raises I think again I mean there, there's so many practical applications for you who are going to be ministers and missionaries and, and Christian workers and stuff. Whitfield had a lousy marriage. It, it, I can't tell you how much that bothers me. I, it, just, it just stinks that somebody would be this great preacher, give all of his time to other people, and have a lousy marriage. It, it's not a good exchange, in my, in my very humble opinion. Uh, and and you, please don't make that kind of mistake. It's very easy, I assure you. Uh, but don't make that mistake. On his one-week honeymoon, Whitfield had married a gal, you know, like this, named Elizabeth James. 
relation. No relation, as far as I know. And uh, on the honeymoon, he preached twice every day. Yes! Yes! I mean, can you imagine? Here's a guy. I mean, he's really dedicated to the Lord, doing the Lord's work. Isn't that, is that what we always hear? I, have to neg- I can neglect my family. It's okay to do that as long as I'm doing the Lord's work. I don't buy that for Whitfield or for anybody else. Uh, huh? <laughs> That's right. Uh, the, the other thing is, I mean, Whitfield would do things like, because he's on these preaching tours for like a year and a half or two years, he would be away from his wife for two years. Not see her. Two years. As far as we know, we, what we do know, this is there's a, there's a little bit to this. Uh, no children. They they they, they had. Uh, it's kind of hard <laughs> when you're gone all the time. But uh, the story about this lady, this marrying Elizabeth James, is rather peculiar. Uh, Whitfield had come to the conclusion that. Uh, he felt that a, that, a, that a Christian ought to be married. A minister should be married. Now, he didn't, didn't seem to have any real deep desire to be married. He just felt it was a matter of conviction. Uh, and his buddy, Howell Harris, who was another great evangelist in England, was very much in love with this lady, Elizabeth James. And Howell Harris uh, w- w- seemed to be in love with her. But he had the conviction that he could not have anything between him and the Lord's work. And so he decided that he could not get married, even though he was very much drawn to this Elizabeth James. So what does Howell Harris do? He says, George, I've got one for you. And so Howell Harris, who seems to have been at least at one point in love with Elizabeth James, proved to be a matchmaker for Elizabeth James and George Whitfield. Uh, and after a relatively short period of time, they got married. Howell Harris gave her away at the wedding. And one of the other little sort of interesting things is that we have some letters that Elizabeth James wrote ten years after her marriage to Whitfield where she is still pining for Howell Harris. <laughs> Uh, it does not have the makings of a good marriage at the very outset. And the fact that he was away from home uh, so much of the time meant that it was not a good marriage. Uh, really, um, just a real disappointment. Back to uh, Wesley. Let's pick, up, let's pick up the story of the Wesleys. They decided in about 1735 after the death of their father, to become missionaries to this new colony in Georgia. And what's really, really interesting about the uh, pilgrimage of particularly John Wesley is the repeated contact with the Moravians. Uh, there is a, there's a sense in which, if you, if you want to look at the historical origins of Wesleyan Methodism or whatever, you need to go back to two basic influences. One, the Anglican Church. And secondly, 
the influence of the Moravians. They were very significant in the spiritual development of John Wesley. Uh, four crucial points at which the Moravians influenced or had some dealings with, with John Wesley. The first uh, circumstance is when the Wesley brothers were on a ship sailing to the United States in 1735 to become missionaries. On that ship were 26 Moravians under the leadership of David Nitsham. He was the first bishop of the Moravian church. And the Wesley brothers were overwhelmed at the character of these Moravians. There was something about them that captivated uh, the Wesleys. In particular, there was a very serious storm. And everybody else was pulling their hair out and were panic-stricken. But all of the Moravians had a calmness in the face of possible death that was very, very striking to the Wesleys. In fact, when the storm suddenly hit, the Moravians were conducting a worship service on the ship. And did the storm stop them from conducting their worship service? No. Wesley writes, In the midst of the psalm, reading the psalm, the sea broke over, split the main sail in pieces, covered the ship and poured it in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Moravians calmly sang on. I asked one of them afterwards, Were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, said Wesley, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied, he replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. That kind of character in the face of a life-threatening storm caught the attention of the Wesleys. Having first, that's the first contact with the Moravians. The second key point of Moravian influence, contact with the Wesleys, was uh, once they arrived in Georgia, in Savannah, Georgia, Wesley ran into another Moravian. Do you get the feeling that the Moravians are missionary-minded? They are. Wesley met another Moravian, uh, Spangenborg. S-P-A-N-G-E-N-B-O-R-G. Great test name. Spangenborg had come to America as uh, a missionary. And Spangenberg, Borg, had uh, they come and they'd become friends a little bit, Wesley and Spangenborg. And one day, shortly after Wesley arrived, Spangenberg looked straight at Wesley and said, Do you know Jesus Christ? And Wesley replied, I know he's the Savior of the world. Spangenberg responded again, True, but do you know? that He has saved you. Wesley was pierced to the core because he could not say that he knew that Jesus had died for him and saved him. And so all the while that he was in Georgia, there seems to be this intense struggle, this, this 
discovery that he did not think he really belonged. He had an intellectual assent to these propositions. But his there was something missing. At least he thought that from the perspective of the Moravians that there was something wrong. Uh, and to further exacerbate his own spiritual struggles, uh, Wesley turned out to be a very poor missionary to the Indians, quite unsuccessful. He tried to start uh, a religious society in Savannah, Georgia. Now, this is not for the Indians. This is for the other people. And he inevitably alienated the settlers, the colonists. I said to you before, I believe, I'll say it again, Wesley had a bit of a harsh personality. He was not the kind of guy that you kind of got warm fuzzies from. Remember, he came from a pretty uh, austere family life. And I think all of that contributed to a, a, a pretty harsh personality. And as a result, he tended to alienate people with this, these religious societies that he tried to establish in Savannah, Georgia. The most conspicuous example of his alienation occurred with regard to a young lady by the name of Sophie Hopke. Sophie Hopke. Uh, Wesley was quite captivated by Miss Hopke. Uh, they courted and uh, gave every indication uh, he did that he was interested in marrying Sophie. Uh, but he was still struggling with this question uh, should I get married or should I devote myself exclusively to the Lord's work? That's the, the debate. Now, having encountered the Moravians, he thought, how can I resolve this, this dilemma? I'm very attracted to Sophie. She's cute. Should I follow my heart and marry her? So under the influence of the Moravians, what does Wesley do? He casts lots to decide whether or not he should marry Sophie. This is still the second. This, and this is what I'm talking about. This is the point at which the Moravians influenced his life. Because when he drew lots, the result was that he should not marry cute little Sophie. He did not marry her. He followed... I mean, remember the Moravians or the, or the, or the group that if you want to get the guidance from the Lord, you roll dice... That's the, the, the notion here of casting lots. No. They're they're Moravians. <laughs> uh, not exactly, but anyway. And the result of casting lots uh, meant that he went, had to go to Sophie and say, "Sophie, God has spoken conclusively uh, that I am not to marry you." Well, Sophie was stunned. Uh, she didn't understand this casting of lots. And so she was very angry and very quickly married somebody else on the rebound. Uh, she accepted the proposal of someone else. And then Wesley was not particularly happy about this set of circumstances. It's one thing for him to turn Sophie down, but it's another when she goes off and marries somebody else. As a result of this, this sort of hostility between Sophie and John Wesley, uh, he refused 
to let them take communion in the church in which he was serving because he did not agree with the marriage. Uh, you know, it's, it's, that's a pretty tough position to put Sophie in, I think. Uh, tell her you can't marry her, but that she can't marry anybody else. Uh, well, Sophie was angry, and now so was her husband, having been turned away from the communion table. And pretty soon, the whole community in Savannah, Georgia, are angry with Johnny. And in 1738, Wesley essentially has to flee from Savannah, Georgia, because everybody is very, very upset with him. Talk about alienation. He had trouble. Well, that's the second. And here's a case where the Moravian influence dramatically affected his life. He would have married Sophie, but decided not to because of this Moravian influence. A third uh, point at which Moravians influenced uh, Wesley is when he returns to England in 1738. Immediately upon his arrival, he runs into another Moravian, Peter Bowler, B-O-E-H-L-E-R. And here we're going to talk about the actual conversion. Peter Bowler. Uh, during this period now, he's, 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 he's lost one prospective bride, He's struggling with whether or not he's really a Christian. He comes back having been run out of town, been a failure as a missionary. All of these things are coming to bear upon young John Wesley at this point, And he's in a period of spiritual crisis in February of 1738. He comes back to London and he's looking for guidance. He's looking for somebody to make sense of his life. Uh, he, by this time, he become convinced that he was not a Christian. And he runs into this Moravian by the name of Peter Bowler. Now, he went to Peter Bowler and he said, Pete, uh, I'm convinced I'm not a Christian. Should I stop preaching? And Bowler said, By no means. Preach faith until you have it. And then because you have it, you will preach faith. That was the counsel of this Moravian. And then under the leading, under the guidance of Peter Bowler, both Charles and John Wesley were converted within three days of each other. Charles Wesley was converted in May, May 21st, 1738. These are his dates. And then John Wesley was converted last of all, May 24th, 1738. There's a wonderful passage, and, and uh, you've, you've got to appreciate Wesley at this point because uh, it had been through reading Luther's commentary to Romans, to the Romans, that Wesley actually had the moment of conversion. This is what Wesley writes of the moment. Listen how specific he is. I, I find this interesting. About a quarter to nine, 8.45 p.m., I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that He had taken away my sins. Okay, a fourth point at which the Moravians influenced Wesley. Three weeks after 
Wesley was converted, that his heart was strangely warmed, what do you think Wesley does? He goes to Hernhut in Germany and he meets Zinzendorf himself. Uh, this is very interesting because what we see in Wesley is a, a sense in which he sees himself as a Moravian because he goes right back to Hernhut. He goes right there initially. It's just sort of this pilgrimage to Rome kind of idea. Uh, trying to get the spiritual guidance and, and uh, affirmation that he needs. So I think there is, a there is uh, at least in the very earliest stages in 1738, uh, Wesley viewed himself, if not as a Moravian, as having enormous sympathy with the Moravians. They've affected his life dramatically. He didn't marry Sophie, and he would have otherwise. Uh, and uh, Moravians have been the ones who have led him along this path to the new birth. Uh, at any rate, like, like it happened so often, when he got to Hernhut and met Zinzendorf, he was disappointed. Disappointed. He found in Zinzendorf uh, that everybody placed him on a, on a pedestal kind of thing. And, and uh, Wesley was a little, a little concerned about that. It, it wasn't quite like he thought it would be. And I, I can just think of a million parallels for lots of Christians. I mean, has it ever happened to you uh, that there was a, a preacher or some older guy or some older girl that you looked to and you got to know them better? and you realize they weren't quite what you thought they were, and you were maybe devastated. Uh, that's happened to me too. At any rate, he's in Hernhut for a while, uh, being disappointed with Zinzendorf. Uh, still considers himself uh, broadly sympathetic with the Moravians. I mean, after all, they are the ones who have led him to salvation. He returns to London, and then he joins the Moravians. There is a religious society in London called the Fetter Lane Religious Society. Fetter Lane Religious Society. F-E-T-T-E-R Lane Religious Society. Remember I mentioned to you that in England there were various groups that would congregate. They were called religious societies. This actually been one founded by Peter Bowler, the fellow who uh, led him to the Lord. Uh, by 1740, it's pretty clear that Wesley is now decisively moving away from uh, officially associating himself with the Moravians. Uh, initially, they were his spiritual leaders. But then going to Herrenhut, he becomes disappointed with the way uh, Zinzendorf carries himself. I mean, he was, after all, nobility, and nobility, are they're different than the rest of us. And he was a little disappointed in, once he got close to Zinzendorf. He comes back, still uh, going to this Fetter Lane Religious Society. And then in 1740, there's a break where he consciously realizes that he's not really a Moravian. Here's what happened. At the Fetter Lane Religious Society, there was another Moravian who was a leader there. Philip Molther. M-O-L-T-H-E-R. And Molther, the leader, 
upon the instructions from Zinzendorf states that all of those who are participants in this religious society are not permitted to partake of the Lord's Supper if they had any spiritual struggles or doubts whatsoever. So you needed to feel as though you had somehow arrived before you could partake. If you see a perfectionistic tendency here in the Moravians, I think you're probably right. Remember when I talked about Zinzendorf when he came to the States? And you look at people like Edwards and some of those guys who, who met him and talked to him and they said, this guy is not quite right theologically. He seems to have perfectionistic tendencies. And here we run smack into that perfectionistic tendency of the Moravians. You are not permitted to partake of communion unless you have can say to yourself, I have absolutely no doubts and there are no spiritual struggles in me at all. Well, According to Molther, uh, these people who had doubts and who had spiritual struggles did not have true faith and thus they were not qualified to partake. He's not sure these people are Christians. If you have any spiritual doubts or struggles, you may not be a Christian. One wonders what he did when he read Romans 7. Maybe that passage wasn't in his Bible. Anyway, the view advocated by Zinzendorf and Philip Molther was called the stillness theology. Stillness theology. This is what it means. The thinking behind the stillness theology of Zinzendorf and Molther was that one should wait until wait and be still until you have full assurance. And anything less than Full assurance of your faith is not true faith. Based upon this be still theology, this is, this is rather striking. And if you don't have full assurance, then you have no right not only to partake of communion, but you should not read your Bible, you should not pray either. Because only those who have true faith have a right to pray and to read and study their Bible. To partake of communion, reading your Bible, or praying, if there are some spiritual struggles still going on, if there's any degree of doubt whatsoever, then you are doing something that is of the devil, says Zinzendorf and Molther. Well, Wesley was shocked by this kind of idea because he had for years uh, been in, in the midst of struggle and was still struggling in some ways. I mean, ever since uh, Spangenborg asked him, are you a Christian? You have, you have the, a, a point at which it's pretty clear that Wesley is, is really struggling. Well, well, am I? Am I really a Christian? And he seems to be having continued this as well, these, these questions. Uh, Wesley's own faith developed on a more gradual kind of, of, of level. Here's a man who is in the midst of intense religious struggle. It's going on for some years now. Uh, and and his, you know all the, the struggles with Sophie and, and being kicked out of, out of Georgia and 
these, these penetrating questions being asked by the Moravians and then having this sense of belonging to the Lord and yet these same people who led him to the Lord now are starting to talk language that make him, makes him uncomfortable. So just appreciate that we're talking about a man who's in a state of chaos spiritually. Uh, he does pull away, back away from the Moravians. In 1740, he's officially uh, uh, pretty much away from, from the Moravians. Uh, in res- it's in response to this that he becomes, uh, 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 he turns to his old friend George Whitfield and becomes uh, involved with him again. And uh, Wesley, at this point, uh, some point after, uh, creates his own movement called the United Society. But by 1740, Wesley has pretty much now turned away from his Moravian uh, influence. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.